Hello. You have discovered the Felon File. Felonfile.com is a podcast exploration and discussion of law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. Felon File is hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, sergeant, author and researcher. The Shade of Blue Stories for Felon File today. Sunday, morning September 1941. A woman is found at a neighbor's front door. Her clothing soaked with blood. She was the office manager at the clubhouse country club and golf course next door. She had been shot three times. Her daughter, famous female golfer and friend to Bing Crosby and Bob Hope among others, Miss Marion Miley had also been murdered. A multi-state search, several separate trials, and in ten days they were found guilty and given a death sentence. Fair justice. Listen and decide. Background music track unspoken by Mew. Scott, we're recording. Thank you, Victoria, for starting us out, and welcome back to Felon File, a podcast where, like Victoria said, we look at crimes, issues, law enforcement investigations, the good guys, the bad guys, the weird people, the strange, and anything that might be of interest that I hope you guys find interesting, too. Today, we're looking at a homicide from 1941 in Lexington, Kentucky. Early on Sunday morning, September 28th, 1941, now this is just 70 days from December 7th, when as the president would later say, or call a day that will live in infamy, and then the United States will enter into a global conflict. On this particular day in September, in 1941, Mr. J. Giles, that's his name, Jay Giles, owner of a sanitarium in Fayette County, Kentucky, was awoken from a very sound sleep by the ringing of his doorbell and the knocks at his door. Opening the door, he found a woman there, clad in her nightclothes, beating on the door and asking for her to help. Her clothing was soaked with blood, and he did know the woman. The woman was Mrs. Elsa Miley the office manager at the clubhouse country and golf club next door. She had been shot three times. Now, Elsa Miley, she is a German immigrant who grew up in Buffalo, New York, and she was mother to Marion Miley, who as a child, Marion was the center of her mother's world, goes without saying. Elsa proved that that night when despite being shot three times, she crawled over 200 yards over gravel and dirt to get Marion help because Marion had also been shot. The two women were victims of a robbery at the golf club that had turned into a homicide. Miss Miley told the doctor her daughter Marion was seriously injured and needed help right away. In fact, she had been shot once in the head The owner of the sanitarium, Mr. Giles, contacted police and 
call for an ambulance as well. And when police and neighbors arrived at the clubhouse, they found a terrible crime scene. It appeared that the suspects had entered the building where her apartment was through a door to the kitchen, entered the connected apartment that was occupied by Miss Miley and her daughter. The door on the steps leading to their sleeping quarters had been smashed in and the apartment trashed. Mary and Miley was taken to a hospital where she died within a few days without making any statement saying what had happened. Marion's body was found in the hallway between her bedroom and her mother's room, the later being splattered and painted with blood. The telephone had been ripped from the wall and the bedclothes were also covered with blood. Now this issue of the blood and the stains all over the crime scene will come back later and it's interesting how it will come back. The investigation began immediately of course trying to find out who had done this. Now if you don't know who Marion Miley is, I'm really not surprised. She's probably really one of the most famous golfers you've never heard of. Now this again is in the mid-1930s. She was ranked as one of the top players in the country, women golfers. She played in 41 major golfing tournaments from 1931 to 1940 winning 22 of those. A reporter described her as the most photographed golfer in the world and an interview in 1940 had her declare her goal of becoming the best woman golfer in the world and she would then move on to challenge challenge the men in the sport. Miley's father was a golf pro and was so in Florida before the family moved to Lexington, Kentucky in 1930 when Dad got a job as the golf pro at the Lexington Country Club. Mom eventually became the club office manager and Marion continued developing her considerable golf skills under her father's instructions. She was also very interested in music, playing the piano since she was very young, and in medicine. She wanted to become a doctor sometime in the future, and she actually attended Florida State College for Women in the fall of 1930 studying medicine but dropped out after her sophomore year to focus more on her golf playing with the idea that she would do that and as long as she could until she couldn't anymore and then concentrate on her uh, school studies. Now with Lexington County Country Club as her home club, Marion started competing in women's amateur golf tournaments all around the United States. Later on, Standard Oil would actually hire her in a public relations capacity where she traveled around, inspected gas stations, visited with local officials and business leaders, became being a bit of a celebrity, all to help with the advertisement of Standard Oil. Now the killers had been attempting to rob the country club thinking money from a very popular dance that had just been held there might still be there and that it would be an easy mark. The bad guys not knowing that the pricey cost of attendance was accepted on credit for many of the actual attendees and was not paid with actual physical cash. They got away with only around $140 that had to be split three ways. 
that's not much of a profit for all the damage they caused. Miley's funeral took place on October 1, 1941, and was attended by over a thousand people, including many other famous golfers. After the funeral, singer Bing Crosby, who had attended, gave $5,000 in reward money for anyone who helped find the killer or helps convict the killer. Bing Crosby and Bob Hope had actually played golf with Miley on a regular basis, apparently, and they were very upset by the fact that their friend had been killed. Now, looking at our investigation, for a time, investigators were, were kind of baffled about what happened and who could have done this. That is, until a newspaper boy making deliveries in the neighborhood of the club was interviewed. He gave a description of a car he had seen parked near the clubhouse the morning of the murder and robbery that he saw while he was delivering his papers. This gave investigators something to look for, a starting point, but originally nothing turned up. That is, until, like any type of good investigation, you put as much information out there to other police agencies as you can in hopes they may have uh, something similar or they may come across a clue or something that's going to help with your case. That's when Fort Worth, Texas police arrested a man in a car stolen from the Lexington, Kentucky area. The car's description ended up matching exactly to the description of the suspect's car given by the paperboy Kramer, the Lexington, Kentucky newspaper boy. Now, there was a man named Tom Penny driving this car. It had been stolen from Kentucky and driven to Texas. When interviewed in Fort Worth, he immediately admitted to his involvement in the robbery. He also pointed fingers at two other individuals, a Bob Anderson and then later a Raymond Skeeter Baxter. Now, who were these men? Tom Penny. He came from a very solid family with strong roots to Anderson County, Kentucky. But after his father died when he was about 12 years old, he lost his way, so to speak, and ended up in a series of crimes and prison sentences. On the night of the robbery, his instincts, he said, told him repeatedly not to go through with it. The so-called leader of the group, Bob Anderson, cunning and very self-assured, Anderson was the type of guy who considered himself the smartest person in the room as soon as he entered. Even though he was an ex-con, he still had some financial resources to hire a high-priced uh, defense attorney, which he did. He also used every trick he had to manipulate Penny regardless of the consequence. Our third suspect, Raymond Skeeter Baxter, the crime's inside man. Skeeter worked for the country club, and he had done so for quite some time, starting out as a caddy and later as a greenskeeper. Miss Miley, our victim's mother, trusted him. She liked him. And, unfortunately, he betrayed that friendship and trust by hatching a robbery plan that went terribly, terribly wrong. 
Statements of the witnesses and Miss Miley, along with other physical evidence, discovered the crime scene was presented to the grand jury after Tom Penny had been located and arrested. In October 27, 1941, a local grand jury returned a true bill charging the three with the murder of Mary and Miley, and of course the robbery and assault on Miley's mother, and the assault on Marion's mother. The indictment in seven counts for each man covered every phase of the crime of homicide, conspiracy, and robbery, and breaking and entering. The state of Kentucky decided that they would hold separate trials for each of the men. The ringleader, Anderson, went on trial on December 12th. The inside man, Baxter, ended up going to trial on December 15th. And Tom Penny ended up going to court on December 18th. Each of the three men were found guilty and sentenced to death. Of course, there's automatic appeals were made to higher courts asking for reversals and or reviews of the evidence or retrials. Though tried last, Tom Penny was the first to make it to appellate courts. Penny was unable to, or had been unable to, employ his own counsel and attorneys, so the court had appointed an attorney uh, from the Lexton, Kentucky Bar to represent him. Penny had made a confession implicating his companions. It was stipulated by the state that Penny did not fire or shoot or any of the shots which struck Miller came from his gun. After the introduction of evidence, it was brought out in court that Penny had made his confession and that the statement had been written down and read to Penny, who had agreed with it and signed the document. A request by the defense team, a hearing was set up in judges' chambers to review Penny and his statement that he made, whether it was made under duress and whether it was a legal statement, whether it could be used in court and other issues involving that statement. The hearing in the judges' chambers, this gave Penny time to re-examine his statement, his written statement, and for the judge to decide if there had been any duress or that, or as it was stated in court documents, to ascertain if it had been obtained in violation of Kentucky's Anti-Sweating Act. Um, Kentucky had at that time a state law that covered using threats and physical violence against suspects to obtain a confession from the Anti-Sweating Act in Kentucky. Penny affirmed that he had made the statements voluntarily, without threat or promise, that it was all he wanted to say about it at this time. The statement was introduced and read to the jury during the original trial by the district attorney. Penny himself testified where he related the preparation for the robbery and how the robbery ended up turning into a homicide and where the deadly weapons had come from that were used. Penny was 32 years of age and had lived in Lexington, Kentucky for about 18 years. 
uh, metal worker, carpenter, and at the time though he was unemployed. And that's kind of how this whole thing started. One of the other suspects he had known, uh, the Baxter individual that had worked at the club, sometime in August of 1944, and then later in September they discussed it as well. Penny had asked Baxter if he knew where he could find work. Now Baxter at the time was working at the country club. Penny asked him if there was an opening there. Baxter told him that there wasn't, unfortunately. But there was a lot of money out there to be made very easily. That there was just one old lady who slept there at night and she usually had three or four thousand dollars under her pillow and there was nothing to do but go there and pick it up. No gun would be needed as there would be no one there but the older lady. Penny testified to this stated that afterward he talked to a Tom Lunsford also from Lexington Kentucky no relation that I'm aware of about the plan. Lunsford at first agreed to join the robbery plan but thinking about it more he backed out later testifying at the trial and he collaborated Penny's story. Now Penny stated that he had been told to go to Louisville to see Bob Anderson who had, he had met in prison uh, who might have something for him to do. When he located Anderson and eventually when he went to Anderson looking for possible employment he told him of the Lexington Golf Clubhouse plan and Anderson liked what he heard and agreed to take part. Penny and Anderson left Louisville, Kentucky in Anderson's car around 8.30 apparently on the 27th driving getting to Lexington, Kentucky and the golf club 11 o'clock in the evening. Uh, they drove out to where Baxter worked at the golf club but they couldn't find him. And then they drove around to hit a couple of the speakeasies or roadhouses and at Ma Gabbard's roadhouse they located him and all three parties had a couple and then they got in the car and talked about the proposed robbery. Baxter said there had been a good crowd that night and it was a good night to go out there and take the money. The three rode around at Anderson's car or the car that Anderson had which later turned out to be stolen. They visited a couple other roadhouses, then went on back to Lexington where they stopped at a drugstore and bought a flashlight. And according to the court records and the court testimony, a clerk testified that the same men, and he identified Anderson, about 1.30 a.m. on September 28th, had purchased a flashlight. I don't know about you, but I'm a little surprised that a drugstore open at 1.30 a.m. Times were different, I guess. Later, Baxter left the two and agreed to meet them at the country club at 2 o'clock in the morning. When the two arrived, they couldn't find Baxter. And it took them about 20 or 30 minutes before they were able to locate him. The car Anderson was driving was parked inside the grounds of the golf club. It was a short distance from the gate. That's how come the paper boy was able to see it after a while. Baxter showed up and got out of his car and told the two men, Anderson and Penny, to follow him. 
They stopped near the clubhouse, and Baxter then noticed that there were a few other people still on the grounds. Well, he dealt with them and escorted them off the property, which was part of his job. Then he returned to Anderson and Penny. Later on, that came back to bite him again when one of the individuals he escorted off the property, Oscar Givens, testified to this fact and testified to seeing Baxter talking to the two other men who he didn't know and he later identified as Anderson and Penny. The distraction taken care of, one of the two asked Baxter whether he had cut the phone wires. It had been planned before they met up again that Baxter was supposed to have disabled the phones. But he said no, he hadn't been able to. He didn't have the time to do it. Apparently there was still a lot going on with the, at the club that night. The three went around the building looking for the place where the wires came into the, into the apartment, but they couldn't find it. So Baxter, with his flashlight, pointed out the room where Miss Miley slept. He also was supposed to have a key to the rear door, but again, he failed in this respect. So one or the other, Anderson and Baxter, ended up removing a screen, and Penny, with some assistance, got hefted through the window. He unlocked the rear door, and Anderson came in. And it's at that point that Baxter left, supposedly to go keep a watch. The two went to a door at the top of the steps and found it locked. They heard a car and saw some lights, so they left and went back out to the driving range where they were supposed to meet up with Baxter. Once they found him, uh, they told him they hadn't been able to accomplish the robbery. They told Baxter of the difficulties and he agreed to go back and look things over again. He came back shortly and said everything was fine and there was nobody around and then he left. The two other men got out of the car and Anderson produced a couple of handguns and gave Penny an automatic pistol. They went in again through the kitchen. Anderson got an iron of some sort and a screwdriver which he gave to Penny Anderson wrapped the iron piece in a towel and this is what he used to break a panel on the stair doors in order to have access to the apartment. Penny thought he heard somebody call out, who's there? And just as they entered the door, Penny says he was knocked to the ground and he could not tell who or what had struck him as it was dark. Someone grabbed him around the neck and in the struggle the pistol he was carrying went off. He testifies and says that the round went into the floor and forensics was later able to back this up. He said after that shot that's when everything broke loose. There was a lot of shooting, scuffling, screaming and hollering. All this occurring all up and down the hallway from the point where he had been knocked down. Penny then got up went to the room at the end of the hall and that's when he saw Anderson jerking the telephone out of a woman's hand. The woman was telling Anderson where the money was that it was in a drawer and Penny went to check on it. He opened the drawer and took out two $10 bills and a check for $5. About this time a light came on outside like a car light is what Penny said and he told Anderson let's get out of here. 
So they left and then got away as quickly as they could and drove back to Louisville. Now later when Penny made his first statement to officers, he had declined or refused to tell the investigators what had happened to the pistols on the night of the homicide. He said they had been thrown into the river. And after hearing that they were going to get divers to go look for the pistols, ended up telling them where he in fact had actually placed them. And he later took the officers to the place where they were buried near Shawnee Park in Louisville. They had also disposed of a purse or a brown bag in a storm sewer in Louisville that had been recovered. This had also apparently contained some cash as it appears in a division of between all three men each have had received $59 as part of their take. After the guns were recovered one of the police officers later came up to Penny and told him that if he was holding the shiny gun it is not the one that had caused the death or had shot or shot the mother. Further investigation showed that Penny had been convicted once before by a grand jury for assault with intent to rob and they found out that he had met Anderson while both of them had been in prison. And this was all previous to the plans to rob the clubhouse that he had discussed with Anderson. He also brought up another possible robbery that the two of them were going to do in Lexington, but they never got around to that. Penny stated in his statement that as he was trying to leave, he went down the hallway and stepped around or over the body of another lady. He didn't know she was shot and just thought she had been knocked out. He did admit that he had blood on his coat and that two buttons from his coat had been torn off and were later found at the crime scene. Penny learned from the newspapers later that Marion had been killed, that she was dead and her mother was in a very desperate condition. So he went back up to talk to Anderson they, after a discussion, decided that the car should be gotten rid of. Well, Anderson had stolen the car originally, so it was agreed that Penny would dispose of it. And Penny drove it to Fort Worth, Texas, where the car ended up being identified as stolen, and Penny was arrested. And the matchup to the description of the paper boy linked Penny to the homicide and robbery. All three men, like I said, had been convicted and sentenced to death. Now, Penny was the first to appeal. There were eight or more points that were set up by his defense asking for a new trial and stating that there had been evidence of errors. But the appellate courts only found three of these errors that could possibly have caused some problems. One, prejudicial error in overruling motion for a continuance. In denying a new trial when it was developed that the members of the jury were allowed to read newspapers during the trial, which contained news items about the case and unfavorable and prejudicial statements and had a negative impact on the rights of the accused. The appellate courts also said there was an error in refusing to grant appellate a new trial on the grounds of testimony by one of the police officer and his constant reference to blood because of the testimony he gave and the descriptions he made to the jury 
about the excessive amounts of blood and what he actually saw was deemed to be incompetent, irrelevant, or prejudicial and gave a negative perspective to the jurors. Now this I find interesting, looking at it through today's lens in courts, cases, and trials. But I do recall when I first was taking criminalistics back in the 80s, we were told evidence photography was not to be made in color, that the blood stains in color were considered to be prejudiced against the defendant when the evidence is presented. Uh, that didn't last too long after I became a law enforcement officer. Everything pretty much became standard color printing at that point, and that was overruled because it was a fact of the crime scene. But apparently, at that time frame, there was a concern of physical descriptions being used and and being so descriptive that it they could influence the trial which really is that not what we're supposed to be doing when we testify there is the also the argument to the effect that the punishment inflicted was too severe because penny was making his voluntary confession and he assisted officers in making the investigations and he did incriminate himself as well as Anderson and Baxter. The court took the position that if a new trial should be granted, the appellant would stand a chance of having a trial free of bias or prejudice arising from his general feeling of horror at the brutality of the crime and from the effects of the two preceding crimes, and he would be cut a break and might not receive the death this was supported by several incidents in other appellant courts' previous trials. The issue about the newspapers and the jurors being influenced by the write-ups in the papers, the two newspapers in questions was the Cincinnati Enquirer of Thursday, December 18th, and an article in a Lexington newspaper dated December 17th. Prosecution counsel admitted the reading of the paper was an error by the juror, and they weren't supposed to have access to such. The appellate courts, though, did not find it sufficient grounds for setting aside the verdict. But then again, we're talking 1940s. Evidence was interpreted different. The standards were different. We have to keep that in mind. All three gentlemen, their appeals were denied and in 1943 were denied. That's three trials and three death sentences and a total of 10 days. Now, how is that possible? Well, 1943 things were different. In 1943, the year when the three men were convicted in the Miley murders, they died in the electric chair. At that time frame, 128 other prisoners throughout the United States were also executed, according to the Department of Justice Bureau of Statistics. That compares to 22 individuals who were executed in 2019. We go from 128 
1943 to just 22 in 2019. Are we becoming more civilized? I guess it depends on how you look at it. In the Miley case, the appeal process for all three defendants lasted just a little more than a year for a total of 14 and a half months from sentencing to execution. Now let's do a comparison to modern times on those cases. Looking at 2018 where I can get the statistics, the average appeal trial and and execution process took on average 19.8 years for the same process that it took 14 and a half months in 1943. But then of course none of this mattered on the night of her death. Marion and her mother Elsa were living in the second floor apartment at the country club. Ten days after the shooting the first of the three men were arrested Within a week and a half, the other two had been arrested and charged. Again, we're looking at a total of 10 days from being charged to given the death penalty. That brings up the question of, is swift justice the same as fair justice? As Americans, we know we're guaranteed a speedy trial. It's written into the Constitution and specifically the Sixth Amendment, which protects a person's right to a fair trial with un without unnecessary delays. Swift justice is something a little, well, it's something else entirely. It can conjure up the idea that is less desirable, I would say. Jury members rushing to judgment without carefully considering all of the facts. Did all three of these men, Bob Anderson, Tom Penny, and Raymond Skeeter Baxter, deserve to die for the crime when only one of the three actually did the killing? I'm not sure. They were tried by their peers. The court system at the day said it was. But what we do know for a fact is that a golf pro and record setter for women golfers her life ended much too soon. There's no telling what her accomplishments in the field of golf, the field of medicine, or the field of music may have taken her. Due to these three men, the world will never know. That's it for Felon File for this week. I hope you found it interesting. If you're interested in my books, both fiction and nonfiction, you can like always, locate them on Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble's website. You can pick them up at the Mars Hill College in Mars Hill, North Carolina, also at the bookstore there. I appreciate you all listening. Check out our website, felonfile.com, and check the links to some of our stuff pages. Or you might find a coffee mug or a t-shirt that you like. Nothing says leave me alone early in the morning better than drinking your coffee from a felon file coffee mug. Unless, of course, you're wearing a felon file t-shirt at the same time. If you would like to defray some of the costs for our podcast and where we get copies of court records and documents, a lot of 
court districts charge us a minimal fee for getting copies. This includes the FBI guys when we send a Freedom of Information request, which we've got a couple of them coming back now with some good information we hope to share with you soon. Sometimes there are charges for those, and if you'd like to help out with that, just buy Victoria and me a cup of coffee. You can find the link to that at our webpage at felonfile.com or at scottlunsfordauthor.com. And again, if you want to get in touch with us, you can drop us a line at felonfile at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. In the coming weeks, till we come back again next Saturday at 7 p.m. for another episode of Felon File, remember, don't let the Shades of Blue story keep you from doing good things for other people. It's really important, and it not only helps other people, helps you, helps our community, and helps mankind, and helps everyone in general. Help somebody out if you have the opportunity. Until we talk again, Victoria, you got it. Bye, y'all. You have been listening to The Felon File Podcast with your host Scott Lunsford. For more information on this podcast or Scott's books and writings go to scottlunsfordauthor.com and felonfile.com. Scott can also be contacted at these websites. Be sure to check out the stuff page on the website. Pick up a Felon File t-shirt or coffee mug. You can also support the Felon File podcast by buying us a coffee from the link on the website. This is Victoria your producer. Thank you for listening. 2. 1. End. Background track unspoken by MewSoundCloud.com. Mew Music promoted by Free. Stock Music.com Creative. Commons Attribution 3.0 Unported License. Creative Commons.org.